Anyway, folks, I'm going to do two little ditties. And this is my uncle Joe Flynn from Athlone County, Westmead. And maybe you might like to sing along with me. I don't know. This for me. This for me. Now 84, he's been entertaining audiences for over 60 years. He recently reached a pinnacle of sorts when he got a Lifetime Achievement Award for his work in the Irish music industry. We have the award here, so I'd like to present it to Joe Flynn. Congratulations! Joe has had an exciting life in music. Almost 50 years ago, he and his wife Mary were at the centre of a music and political storm after they released their song, The Broken-Hearted Farmer. We brought out the record. Well, it's direct, the rest is history, folks, for the record was banned. The song told the story of the historic farmers' rights campaign of 1966 and 67, where farmers battled with the government of the day because of falling farm incomes, which led to mass protests, road blockades, and tens of farmers going to prison. I suppose we found it hard to believe it. When you knew that you hadn't done anything wrong, it was very hard to stomach and say there's somebody up there who'd made that decision. The song never made it onto the radio in Ireland, and Joe and Mary have always believed that it was banned by the government of the day and RTE. Like too hot to handle was a phrase used. Growing up, I had always heard about my Uncle Joe's song, The Broken Hearted Farmer. Now in the year of the 50th anniversary of the Farmers' Rights Campaign, I've decided to find out what really happened all those years ago. All this is all different, by the way. We begin in that loan, standing outside a shop, a chemist and a restaurant. There was the site of a ballroom where Joe began to make his name in the 1960s. Looking at the Crescent building, the extreme right was the original Crescent ballroom, the top part. The 1960s was the decade of the show bands in Ireland. And in that loan, this was the heart of the scene. It was kind of... Uh, rectangular, it wasn't square. Joe was the lead singer of a local show band called Sid and the Saints, named after their band leader, Sid Shine, whose family owned the Crescent. And that's where the Shine family lived, Mr and Mrs Shine. It was an afterthought to build the ballroom. Sid and the Saints were the resident band. And I remember the lads rehearsing in there, where it says Station House Bistro. My heart is breaking. Dick and Zita O'Brien from Clonbunny County, Westmead, danced to the sounds of the show bands in the Crescent. The girls were all one side of the ballroom and the fellas all the other. Then there was the interval when you were invited down for tea or a mineral. If you were invited for tea, then you were downstairs. <laughs> but a mineral was at the end of the ballroom. But um, that was a sign that you were getting on well. <laughs> Oh, there are lots of stories now that you could tell from. <laughs> half crown. What? That's half crown. Sunday night and Thursday night. Thursday night was cheaper, I think. On a Thursday night, which was... Three shillings, wasn't it, on a Sunday night? Former Fianna Fáil Minister Mary O'Rourke remembers the life of the Crescent Ballroom. I got married in 1960, and for about two years before that, I was very great with Enda, my late husband. Then Enda would go for and pay the money, and you went upstairs, up, there was three or four stairs up, and you landed into heaven. And heaven was Joe Flynn and Sid Shine and the Saints playing, and Sid was very small, and he'd be all-important, like, you know, he was the owner, and... Joe Flynn played 
Well, he played loads of instruments, but Joflin, we all went to see Joflin. He was gorgeous, we thought. He's still kind of gorgeous, I think. Dark-haired, swarthy. I'll always remember that the saints wore lovely uniforms with shiny buttons on them. And we danced and danced, and we thought, we thought we were in fairyland. Five years before Joe and Mary Flynn wrote the song The Broken-Hearted Farmer, they had never even met. But that changed one day in 1961. Flicking through your scrapbook, Mary. Yes, it's so old now at this stage. You've all music stuff connected with Joe. Well, I have everything he ever did is here. Mary, from Tulse County, Roscommon, is from a family steeped in traditional music. I was working in Dublin from 61, and I have to say, didn't particularly like it. So the company I was with had an office here in Athlone and the boss came to Dublin to say he needed somebody. And when he heard I was from Roscommon, he came down to me and said, would you like to come to Athlone? I said, yes, please. Instantly. So the company put me up in the Central Hotel and I could stay there for two weeks until I got proper digs or whatever. And my first evening in the job, it was November 1961, I was walking back to the hotel and there were no traffic lights at the top of Northgate Street. And this little blue van stopped to let me across. And it was the first time I saw Joe Flynn. That same week, I saw him in the Crescent. Born to be there was a reason why there was such a strong showband scene in Ireland in the 1960s. There were more young people around. In the Crescent, many of those on the dance floor were there because Ireland was changing. Unemployment had eased. There were more industrial jobs, less emigration, and a good feeling about. But that was not the case for everyone on the dance floor. Dancing beside the young workers in these new industries were the farmers. They weren't feeling the effects of the boom. In the 60s, over one-third of the population worked in agriculture. And the farmers had a union, the National Farmers Association, or NFA, the precursor to the IFA. The IFA nowadays is seen as a powerful lobby group. But the NFA back then was easily ignored by the government. While Joe Flynn was from the town, farming friends like Dick O'Brien we're going to provide inspiration for a song. Bought cattle in the west of Ireland yeah. last week. Dick was an active member of the NFA in the 1960s, a time when farmers were unhappy about the low prices they were getting for cattle, milk, and other produce, which made paying rates difficult. At that time, the average farm income was in the region of five pounds a week, compared to the average industrial wage of 20 pounds a week. The NFA wanted to bring farmers' incomes in line with industrial workers. It was very difficult in those, in those early days. It was very difficult. Uh, poor incomes, I mean, poor prices, bad structure. It was just... Uh, there was nothing being done for it. I mean, it was an industry that had huge potential, but there was nothing being done for it. NFA members wanted the right to negotiate with the government on behalf of farmers rather than just be consulted. This present situation arises from a variety of factors which are completely outside our control. 
but they were up against the Minister for Agriculture, who wasn't minded to negotiate Charles Hockey. Uh, I've already indicated that uh, I intend to establish a meat board uh, at the earliest possible moment. This decision has been taken. In 1966, non-productive negotiations and ongoing broken promises led to increased farmer anger. I mean, I was young, but I was very enthusiastic about it. was going to change the world when I came back farming, but it wasn't that simple. So we got involved in the NFA at the time. Membership would have been small enough at the time, so we built up the membership, and then there was talk about protests. Many of Joe's farming neighbours from around the Midlands were involved in the campaign, the first call to action of its kind by the NFA. I left farming in, in 1960 and I went to England for five and a half years or so and I returned in 66 back to farming again at the home farm. PJ McEvely from South Roscommon. Started going to NFA meetings again and uh, picked up from there. Uh, I got a rather quick baptism. I was appointed secretary shortly after going to my first or second meeting. In October 66, led by president of the NFA, Rickard D.C., some 30,000 members set out from all over the country in a carefully synchronised plan to arrive at government buildings on the same day to demand to be heard. Many of them had been going for 12 days under soft rain on a hard road, taking part in this marathon protest march. Farmers from all over Ireland demanding a better deal from the government, marching on Dublin to present their case. Many of them from the distant stony fields of the west had been footing it for well over 200 miles. Walk from... Bantry Bay and from Ballina and from Donegal and different parts of the country. But there was common people. They met the people coming from the west and uh, we brought caravans and parked them on the side of the road and we stayed in different farms and on our way to Dublin. That was the start of the major campaigns of, of farming. My involvement in the march while I was at it every day... Dick O'Brien. They lived in caravans. I think they walked 17 miles every day. And somebody had to move the caravans. And I had a hitch on the car at the time. So that was my involvement at the time was to move the caravans, make sure they had enough gas for cooking and that in the evenings, and then on to Dublin. Because I came home every night then. Up the next morning then they'd, they'd be gone walking and I'd move all the caravans. As it went on, other, other groups joined you. So the Sligo people, the car that they had broke down, so I had to move the Sligo caravans as well as our own caravans. Joe continued to hear about the unrest amongst the farmers as he toured parish and community halls around Ireland with Sid and the Saints. From all parts of Ireland, thousands of protesting farmers marched on the capital to present their case to the Minister of Agriculture and Fisheries. The refusal of Mr High to meet a delegation led to the famous sit-down on the department steps. It lasted night and day... We arrived in Dublin and they wouldn't be met at the door when we got to the department. The government announced that it would not be dictated to. Nine farmers began a sit-down protest outside government buildings, which went on for three weeks. Uh, the Minister for Agriculture refused to meet them, and that was the famous sit-in. It was 21 days they sat outside the Department of Ag Agriculture headquarters at Merrion Street. All the neighbouring counties closest to Dublin had to provide personnel to stay with the guys that were sitting outside. We only did one night during that time on the street. The sit-down location became known as Checkpoint Charlie. Taxi drivers pull up to have the chat and people passing by. While it was tough on the, on the lads that were sitting there, 
But I mean, there was, there was always a great bit of crack going on, a bit of camaraderie, and you wouldn't know who'd appear at some stage during the night. Well, it was tough going. It was, it was a bit of enjoyment always to it. The ground was set for a huge standoff between the NFA and the Irish government. Charlie Hawhey. Mary O'Rourke. He called the NFA a pipsqueak of an organisation. Mm. The minister was fully supported in his tough stance against the NFA by Taoiseach Sean Lamas and Minister for Industry and Commerce, George Colley. Meanwhile, the Minister for Industry and Commerce, Mr Colley, was quick to defend Mr Hawhey. Very many people in Ireland, including me, uh, are full of admiration for the dignity and the courage shown by the Minister for Agriculture in dealing with the harassing campaign which has been carried on by the NFA against him. Uh, I also think that it should be quite clear to most people by now that what the NFA has been demanding and is demanding is that the government should surrender to it. No democratic government can do this and if it were to do this uh, no decent people would go into public life and eventually there would be no law and order and it would be simply the law of the jungle. Historian and broadcaster John Bowman of RTE talks about a famous incident when Hahi made a name for himself and his hardline position on the NFA. Hahi was one of those politicians at that time who presumed that RTE would not be broadcast journalism, that it would basically be, as indeed Lamas called it at the time, an instrument of public policy. So it was, it was there initially to broadcast whatever the government policy was. And that should be challenged in the dole, but not, not in broadcasting. There was one famous occasion, and it was during this National Farmers Association march. It was on the 7th of October when the National Farmers Association demanded a summit meeting with the minister. And on the television news, there was a statement by Hohi uh, and a statement by the leader of the farmers, Ricard Deasy, who was a formidable leader. And Hohi complained about the juxtaposition of these two statements getting equal weight. And Pierce Kelly, who was the head of news, instructed the staff to drop the DC statement from subsequent bulletins. And all hell broke loose in the newsroom. The NUJ were involved uh, and publicly they protested. And indeed, it was debated in, in the Dáil. And it took about five or six years for RTE to establish, and Pierce Kelly didn't help with that particular decision, but for RTE to establish that it was going to give equal weight to all sides and was going to have debates about these matters. Eventually the farmers ended the sit-down outside the Department of Agriculture and were met by Lamas and Hockey. After many weeks that was called off, but uh, farmers were getting nowhere at the time. They then moved on to block the roads later on. In November 66, Lamas resigned as Taoiseach and was succeeded by Jack Lynch. Hahi left agriculture to become Minister for Finance and Neil Blaney became Minister for Agriculture. The campaign continued with increased bitterness in December 1966 and into 1967 in the form of road blockades around the country which brought traffic to a standstill. The NFA president, Mr. Ricard DC, outlined even more drastic measures. Next decision is that as from tomorrow morning week, all counties will be ready to lay on the mass movement of agricultural vehicles on the road, within the law again. At every 
bridge and roadway going over the River Shannon was blocked. Michael Mackin from Carrick O'Brien, County Westmead, was involved in the blockade in Athlone. You know, and that was planned from, from, the, from the Shannon at its source to Limerick. It, it was a military nearly operation. They blocked them with tractors and anything that they had. Joe Flynn and Mary McHale got married the same month as the demonstrations. I'm just looking at the bridge here and the, the span of it and look behind it, the castle. And I say, if you could talk, it could tell you memories. I can tell you that much so good. It caused a sensation, the blocking of the bridge. I mean, traffic couldn't move. I'll never forget it. Tractors reversing, other tractors coming. The guards were in bad temper. There was fellas driving tractors and they were jumping off, having rows. They just couldn't get across. Pedestrians wanted to know what was happening. But they loved it. The farmers loved it. And everybody else, of course, was, as I say, a top dog. I was involved with the one from Atlone. Dick O'Brien. Which we blocked the bridge infamously or famously, whatever side you're looking at it from. <laughs> now, we did have it blocked in such a way that if, if there was an emergency, we could zigzag into the tractors to get anyone across. So anyone that did come that we thought was genuine, we had no trouble getting them across. Michael Mackin's wife, Patty, was also in the middle of Atlone Town that day. I was there at the march, all right. I was only, we weren't long married at the time, only a couple of years, yeah. I, I can remember it well. That's why I kept the photographs, you see. So it was a great day. My tractor's there in the middle of the bridge. There. It was a brilliant day, a cold. January, yeah. It was, yeah, yeah. It was cold, but the was cold, was in top very dry. But it was, it was dry, lovely, dry. lovely, a lovely day. That day, Breda Hogan had to cross the bridge on her bicycle through the farmers' protest to get to work in the town's biggest department store, Burgess. I was working in Burgess at the time. I was on my way to work, on the bike. Got as far as the bridge. I got over the bridge and I couldn't get back. That was it. But I couldn't get back over the bridge again. Because the farmers had taken the whole the two sides of the road. It was there, yeah, packed. Well, it all went off peacefully and we all headed home and... There was people for it, and of course there were people against it, like the 1916 rising, you see. Zita O'Brien was working in a nearby factory in Athlone. Where I was working, there were some people who were a bit annoyed because they had relations who couldn't get through. And I was, was more or less being... I felt I was being blamed anyway. <laughs> and it went on, it was always there as kind of a, a thing hanging over me that I was... My boyfriend at the time was responsible for <laughs> blocking the bridge and blocking uh, people getting through when it was very important. Farmers were fined for their part in the road blockade but refused to pay. Our names were taken who owned the tractors and who was parked up in the days and I think maybe because I was secretary I was singled out along with our other colleagues. And that led to a number of summonses being issued and they, they pleaded guilty on the day in court and they were fined, and nobody paid the fines, which was decided at a public meeting outside St Peter's Church, about well, half an hour after the court, that they wouldn't pay the fines. Many of them ended up in prison, including PJ McEvely. We were fined £15 for blocking the road. We lost our licence for six months, and in lieu of uh, not paying our fine, we would serve three months in, in jail. The farmers were prepared to fight to the bitter end. That was the greatest thing that ever happened. 
because the membership just exploded. The fact that these guys were arrested and brought to Mount Joy, which really was the making of the NFA at the time because everybody rallied around then. I mean, it, it became a very strong organisation at that stage. There was a change of heart in, in a government source at level at the time. On the 21st of February, Gardy arrived at my home at the time, asked for the payment, so we informed him we weren't making any payments. So he said, regrettably, he said, I'm a farmer's son myself, he said, but he said, I have to tell you, we have to bring you to Mount Jai this evening if you don't pay the fine. We didn't pay the fine, and we were collected two hours later. We got about two hours' notice. We packed our bags, not that we needed them at the time, but... Uh, I have to say that when we got there, I don't think anybody was expecting us when we arrived there. On the first night, I think there was about five or six people in, and every day after that, new people arrived, and all neighbours and all friends, and we were all of the one category. And uh, we all meet, meet each other. We would have meetings in our rooms. We had our little delegates uh, from different groups. People who had problems at home with their own farm, we tried to get messages out that so-and-so needed help or Johnny needed help or Tom needed help or whatever. It was an experience of a lifetime, that part of it. Um, we didn't get out until the 14th of March. We were home for St. Patrick's Day. NFA members were still being arrested for non-payment of rates into April 1967. Joe Flynn with Sid and the Saints were still showbanding through the country. In the showband business, there were two kinds of band. The jobbing workaday bands and the stars. Brendan Boyle was in the charts. Butch Moore, I think, was in the charts at that time as well. Joe Dolan a little later. Then Dickie Rock, of course. Is he? If you, no. If you look at the show band scene, there were 600 show bands in Ireland. But if you ask any man or woman in the street, even now, to start counting, they'll probably end up at 15. Some of them mightn't even get to the top 15. While the regular bands were at the mercy of the venues, with the star bands, it was the other way around. They were the people who were commanding their own fees. And it did go as high as 70 30. That means the band comes in and they took 70%, and the ballroom was left with 30%. Joe and his band, Sid and the Saints, really wanted to become one of the big show bands. And one quick way to do that was to release a hit record. So it's the same old story. If you had that elusive hit record, well, you were going to be up there. If you got your song into the top ten in Ireland and were played on RTE in the late 60s, your stock shot up. 67, there was something like 700 show bands in the country. It was at its height. Brendan Balfe was a radio presenter and producer in RTE at the time. There were crisscrossing the country every day of the week, every night of the week. Uh, there were dozens of them, and there were dozens and dozens of records being issued. And we got to the stage where I said, not another one, OK? And, and, and some of them uh, didn't quite pass the quality threshold, you might say. Now, it was also the Summer of Love, there was also Thunderclap Newman and the, the Birds and all the Beatles and everything else was going. We were spoiled for choice. 
But what song to release? Joe and the Sins could have released a cover or written their own song. He decided they should write their own and turn to his wife Mary. His idea was to write a song about the recent farmers' protest. He picked a tune, Dan O'Hara, written by Mayo singer Delia Murphy, and asked Mary to write the lyrics. At that time, in the show band business, if you wanted to have a hit record, you had to go to number one, and you had to have a gimmicky, or if not gimmicky, it had to be good enough that the punters would buy it. Now, all the band used to do skits on stage and all that. So I got this idea. We had the song, was called Dan O'Hara, right? Sure, it is poor we are. And that was a 2-4 uh, tempo. Well, there was a band who were going to the States in 67, and Joe came in, we were living in a flat at the time, and he came in, I have an idea, he said. Of course, you're always wary of his ideas. And I have the idea, he said, and I have the music. You put the words to it, and if you put words to it, we'll bring it to the States. And the words, I said, I knew she could do it. And I said, we'll do this, I said. And if you do it, I promise I'll take you to America. The streets had been blocked, and the marches were on the town bridge, and there had been numerous court cases. So I sat down my pen and paper and wrote it. So the words were kind of simple enough. They flowed, you know, because it was really only telling a story. Just putting a story together, it just seemed to fall into place. And when you have the music, you know, you have your lines and you know where you have to fit stuff in. So it actually worked very well. I think I surprised him. Well, yeah, I started off, sure it is poor we are today and we'll always be that way, even though we're trying hard to get a hearing. No, this line, for the prices are too low and it's up they'll have to go or the farmer will be left all broken hearted. And then it was what they call it, sure it's a Kushle Galmacree and all that. The Saints recorded the broken hearted farmer on the Tribune label with the old bog road as the B-side. Guys from the band I was in, we drafted in Frank Summers who later played with Foster Nellon. He was on drums. Finbar O'Keefe was on the guitar and backing vocals. Uh, Sidney Shine was on the accordion, he was the leader. And uh, Finbar's girlfriend at the time, Andrea, was a singer from uh, England. Peter Carey was there as well. He was on guitar as well. Mary Flynn, how are you? <laughs> That's my darling. I contacted Peter Carey and arranged for him to reunite with Joe and Mary. And do you remember what was recorded? In Henry Street. In Henry Street, the old Archie. Eamon, Eamon, Eamon Andrews, Andrews Studios. Studios. Yeah. And what happened then, as you, I remember vividly, was... He's a great man. I, I have great memories on that day. Glad you're here. Yeah, he said, <laughs> what God, it was, there was no drop-ins. If no. you didn't get it in the first take, you had to do the whole take again. You had to do all too much money. And your man, remember your man said to us, he said, lads, it can be costly if you don't get it. Yeah. And we did get it right. This was a hurried arrangement. We said we'd have to do it, and we drafted in an army band flautist. He's dead now, Tig Lynch, and he was very, very good, excellent. He ran a counter-melody right through it on the flute. So that was the band, actually. The song became a huge talking point in the dance halls and amongst the farmers. Broken heart to farmer, Dan O'Hara. I wonder would you get that if you tried on the internet? Joe might have it. Joe might have it. I remember it well, sure, Lord, I remember it so well. We used to be all singing it. Will you sing it, will you say a prayer for me? And they used to play it in the present. Yeah. Farmer and local historian Pat Watson was an early member of the NFA. Well, the thing is, we, we weren't too enamoured with it when we heard it. 
at the time. Uh, I remember saying, your man is cashing in on our backs here. <laughs> I think that's exactly what I said. You see, it was a two-edged sword as far as we was concerned. Don't forget that unlike now, we were a little bit afraid of being laughed at. And we didn't realise at the time that all publicity is good publicity. Because it was a good song, great old beat to it. And at that time, don't forget that it would be top of the range in quality. The song got a great reaction on the ground. But in the media, they had to get on RTE for the song to become a hit and to be adopted as the anthem of the farmers. In April 67, while Joe and the Saints were on tour in America, the Irish newspapers picked up on the fact that a song about the farmers' protest had been recorded. The caption from the Daily Mirror read, Mary writes a song about farmers' row. And from the Evening Herald, now a song about farmers' rights. But the English, some of the English papers took a great interest and it was, that was very exciting because when Joe went to the States the end of April for the three and a half weeks, I went home to my mother. And in the mornings you get the phone calls, the Daily Express and the Daily Mirror. I mean, things like that didn't just happen in Tulsk, you know. It was very exciting. I thought I was part of the royal family, you see. A lot of the Irish ones phoned as well, but it was great to hear this English accent in the morning asking me questions. I sometimes wondered maybe his accent was strange to me. Mine was probably very strange to him too. When it was written and what it meant and was it anti... It was supposed to be anti-government, you see. But, I mean, you'd want to be a pure Egypt to think it was, if you listen to the words. You know, it was just a, it was just a story. The farmers' campaign continued in May with 100 NFA members still in prison. The same month, the band had a party for the record in Jury's Hotel in Dublin, where the press and people from the music industry gathered for the launch. This was going to be their big break. They would now be one of the 15 bands that people always remembered. They invited RTE DJs and got a shock when one of them told them that the song would never get on RTE. We brought out the record... Well, it's direct, the rest is history, folks. You know, I can't say it here publicly, but, but the record was banned. And there was evidence the night we had a release party in, in Jury's Hotel in Dublin. And a lot of personalities were there as well. And this DJ was a very nice man. He said, it would cost me my job to play it. That was... Nobody, no one would touch it. That could be a picture taken the night in Jury's. At the reception, yeah. That's where that was taken. 2nd of May, 1967. The record company decided to hold back the release of The Broken Hearted Farmer. And it was that during that time then the word got around that maybe the record was being delayed, the release was being delayed. And we knew then, we kind of knew there was something wrong. I suppose we were very disappointed. Because we knew it would have meant something for the band. It was really for the band it was done, you know. And they were kind of, everybody felt let down. Joe and Mary were never told why the broken-hearted farmer never made it to air. There was never a reason given. As I said, it was cowardly because they didn't have the gumption to come out and say, you know, we're not playing it because of this, this and this. That didn't happen. They're just a downright ban, you know. So it was hard to understand it at the time. Joe has his theory on what might have happened. I, I, well, I'm going to say it now 
because it's, and I don't mind who I affect now. They'll hardly sue me at my age now, I don't think so. I believe that Mr. Charlie Hawhey planned it because the, the, the man who, who did say he wouldn't play, he said it would cost him, he said it was too hot to handle. That was the phrase used, too hot to handle. And I believe, because Finna Fall were like God that time, folks, in Ireland, let's be fair, they were like that. And whatever Charlie said, was, and he got his way, and we had to put up with it. There was no names mentioned, not even one. It told about an event. That's all. Just told about an event, which was true, actually. I don't know, but it was the truth that that uh, uh, song was banned. It could have been a government decision, you see. Yeah, it's an awful lot of songs banned. You'd be hitting a Charlie Hawhey at it. It's possible. In those days, it was an awful lot of songs banned for no reason. Like, like, uh, but they were too sexy, but that one wasn't the, the sexy. The Pope of that bikini it was banned. Been, uh, put another nickel in, that was banned from the Nickelodeon. That was banned, oh yeah. Is the answer to whatever happened with the broken-hearted farmer to be found in the corridors of RTE? The thing to say about banned records is RTE doesn't ban records, OK? Now, it has no legal authority to do so, it cannot do so, it cannot stop people making records. Brendan Balfe was not one of the DJs at the record launch, but did present a sponsored programme on RTE radio in the late 60s. It can editorially decide not to play them. That's all it does. And before I came into the station in the 60s, there was a folk memory of two songs that were banned. Music, Music, Music by Theresa Brewer. All I Want Is Loving You and Music, Music, Music felt by somebody to be too near the knuckle. And I'd Like To Get You On A Slow Boat To China, which is a famous song run, done by Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald. On a slow boat to China All to myself but what about the broken-hearted farmer? My feeling about the record, popular programmes have sponsored programmes, which you must remember were on morning, lunchtime and nighttime slots um, with sponsored programmes. They were done mainly by production companies. I was one of those as well. Because they were, if you like, uh, made by an outside agency, they were submitted to uh, Radio Round, RT Radio. They uh, had a contract with you um, that you weren't allowed address news because the right to read news and the right to do news came down from tablets of stone with Mount Sinai to journalists only. So that also meant nothing of controversy or of news value because, first of all, it would probably break the, the, the broadcasting app. If, if you played this record we're talking about, for instance, someone would say, you're not putting the government's point of view or the minister's point of view has not been, not been recognised here. So, you, so, so by and large, anything of a controversial nature our current news crisis was not allowed. And the way it was not allowed was the, the, you made our programmes, you know, uh, something like four or five days before transmission. They went down to Radio Ram. They were vetted by probably Billy Wall, who later became head of 2FM. He was a sponsor programme officer. And they looked, make sure, first of all, the quality was OK. You weren't doing, and we weren't being bold or anything, anything awful. So if that record had turned up in a sponsor programme, it may have turned up in something like the Associated Ballrooms, which did ballroom programmes and dates at the Albert Reynolds organisation. It would certainly have broken that rule. Matters of, in, of, of controversy or current news items are not allowed because it, it, it vexed the broadcasting act. Well, of course, that song should have been played and should have been discussed as a protest song. 
John Bowman. The notion that it would be played as a sort of popular song on any programme and that Larry Gogan or some sponsored programme would casually play it at a whim is utterly naive. Likewise, if there was a song written on Charlie's side, you know, Arise and Follow Charlie, uh, He'll Keep the Farmers Down, whatever, uh, we don't want them in t- There are a crowd of whingers, we don't want them in town. If somebody had written a, a sort of song of that kind, that wouldn't have been on either. So when you're in the middle of attempting to, to, to with all the, the, the challenges that you're getting in broadcast journalism anyway about fairness and so on, the notion that a pop song, which is on one side of a debate of this kind, would casually be available to be played uh, as often as, as some disc jockey wanted to play it, utterly naive. Unfortunately for Joe and Mary, they weren't privy to what was going on behind the scenes in RTE. I think eventually it took a solicitor's letter to get it eventually released. And then it was late, too late. But to us, no good. The whole impetus had died. Throughout the month of June 1967, the remaining farmers were released from prison. The record company finally released the song in July. However, the farmers' crisis had cooled down and the song had lost its topical appeal. It never became a hit and it was too late for it to become the anthem of the farmers. The other element about it was that novelty records anyway don't have a long shelf life. You play them once without like, that's I've done it and it's gone. There's no repeat value in it at all. You know, it's it's like telling a joke once. You can't keep telling the same joke over and over again. That's the reason it probably got lost. There's a little brown road. In November nineteen sixty seven, around the time the Saints were on their second tour of America, the farmers were celebrating when the NFA honoured 800 men for their involvement in the Farmers' Rights Campaign. Progress on the right to negotiate on key legislation and the setting up of marketing and advisory boards brought the campaign to an end. Joe did keep his promise to Mary and brought her to New York with the band, but she never wrote another song. Yeah, I did my bit of scribbling and that, you know, but nothing actually came out of it, you know. And it just became busy with the house and children and jobs and running and racing. There was no, not much time for relaxing. The Saints show band went on until the end of the 60s, until the lights went out on the Irish show band scene. They never again did another recording. Joe Flynn stayed working in music all his life and has been lead singer of his band Showcase for over 30 years. Hi Joe. Hi, yeah, David. how are you, David? Beautiful Today I'm bringing my Uncle Joe and his wife Mary to RTE in Dublin. And to the famous Studio 8. Not only is the song going to be played on the air in this documentary, but RTE are going to record a new version. I like that. But always remember any key as long as a C. <laughs> and the backing band are the Cam and Bear Quartet who are also the Late Late Show house band. How are you all, lads? But I watch you every Friday night, you know. Oh, I was watching you, no doubt. That's great. And this is Cormac. Hello, Cormac. How are you? Joe, Ray. Ray. A pleasure. A and pleasure, sir. What do you play, sir? I play the drums. Excellent, yeah. How are you, Joe? Yeah? Yeah, Derek. And playing piano. Uh, piano and saxophone. Hello, Mary. Uh, how are you? Paddy, nice to meet yes, you. Nice to meet you. Great too. lyrics. My favourite is, and leave the joy, my joy to those who most deserve it. Mary was tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. That's what I like. Well, no, it still stands the test. There's a bit of a rebel in you. Yeah. 
bit rebellious. Absolutely. Joe gets to relive the recording session. I find sitting here looking at all the equipment and it's hard to credit 49 years on. You know, it, it's, it's a big treat to get to this stage and to hear it. You see, I kept my scrapbook. I have all my cuttings, absolutely every one of them. And I, I can bring in the full circle and finish it, which I think is nice, you know, for the kids and the grandkids. Really looking forward to doing that. If the broken-hearted farmer had become a hit, would it have changed things for Joe, Mary and the Saints? It could have done as good for us as it did for Larry Cunningham with Lovely Leitrim. And we all knew what that did for Larry. Put him up there. Yeah, it would have been short-lived, like all those records, but at that time you were still up there. You could certainly have got into the top ten with it. And that, that means you would have got more bookings. But you had to keep on going, folks. Almost 50 years after the song was written, Joe Flynn finally gets to perform The Broken-Hearted Farmer on RT Radio, broadcast to all corners of Ireland and right across the globe. Yeah. Okay. We got anything going to do? Let's go for a demo. We got four. Yeah. Tighten your belts. Here we go. Good man. So it is poor we are today, and we'll always be that way. Even though we're trying hard to get a hearing. For the prices are still low, and it's up they'll have to go. Or the farmer will be left a broken hearted. Was in the year of '66 that we took our brogues and stick and joined the men from Cork and started walking. But it was to no avail. We sat down against the rails and refused to budge until they started talking. A cush like Gal McCree, would you listen to our plea? And you'll have the prayers of broken hearted farmers. So we sold both cheap and low. Now it's time we had more dough. So we started our campaign and went to marching. No one listened to our plight, so to give them all a fright, we blocked the roads from here to Tipperary. Like pirates in a port, we all ended up in court, and we're fined by our DJs for all our parking. So it is here we are today, as the fines we wouldn't pay. And with Thackers higher colleagues still go marching. And if by chance we win our hand, we go back to farm the land and leave our joy to those who most deserve it. So it's a cush to Gal McCree. Now you've heard the farmers plea. And we think you will agree it's nearly hopeless. In this year of 67, we look up to those in heaven. Suppose it did go to number one. Where, where would you follow? Would you, would you follow me like the other? Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah.